Letter Seven of the Shirley Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Shirley Letters from California Mines in eighteen fifty one and fifty two by Dame Shirley, Louise Amelia Knapp Smith Clapp. Letter the Seventh. THE NEW LOG CABIN HOME AT INDIAN BAR FROM OUR LOG CABIN, INDIAN BAR, OCTOBER seventh, 1851 You will perchance be surprised, dear M., to receive a letter from me dated Indian instead of Rich Bar, but, as many of F.'s most intimate friends reside at this settlement, he concluded to build his log cabin here. Solemn council was held upon the ways and means of getting Dame Shirley to her new home. The general opinion was that she had better mount her fat mule and ride over the hill, as all agreed that it was very doubtful whether she would be able to cross the logs and jump the rocks which would bar her way by the water-passage. But that obstinate little personage, who has always been haunted with a passionate desire to do everything which people said she could not do, made up her wilful mind immediately to go by the river. Behold, then, the dame on her winding way, escorted by a deputation of Indian Barians, which had come up for that important purpose. It is impossible, my sister, for any power of language over which I have command, to convey to you an idea of the wild grandeur and the awful magnificence of the scenery in this vicinity. This fork of the Feather River comes down very much as the water does at Lodore, now gliding along with a liquid measure like a river in a dream, and anon bursting into a thousand glittering foam-beads over the huge rocks, which rise dark, solemn, and weird-like in its midst. The crossings are formed of logs, often moss-grown. Only think how charmingly picturesque to eyes wearied with the costly masonry or carpentry of the bridges at home. At every step gold-diggers, or their operations, greet your vision, sometimes in the form of a dam, sometimes in that of a river turned slightly from its channel, to aid the indefatigable gold-hunters in their mining projects. Now, on the side of a hill, you will see a long-tom, a huge machine invented to facilitate the separation of the ore from its native element, or a man busily engaged in working a rocker, a much smaller and simpler machine used for the same object, or, more primitive still, some solitary prospector with a pan of dirt in his hands, which he is carefully washing at the water's edge to see if he can get the colour, as it is technically phrased, which means, literally, the smallest particle of gold. As we approached Indian Bar the path led several times fearfully near deep holes, from which the labourers were gathering their yellow harvest, and Dame Shirley's small head swam dizzily as she crept shudderingly by. The first thing which attracted my attention as my new home came in view was the blended blue, red, and white of the American banner, undulating like a many-coloured snake amid the lofty verdure of the cedars, which garland the brown brow of the hill behind our cabin. This flag was suspended on the 4th of July last by a patriotic sailor, who climbed to the top of the tree to which he attached it, cutting away the branches as he descended, until it stood among its stately brethren a beautiful moss-wreathed liberty pole, flinging to the face of heaven the glad colours of the free. When I attempt, dear M., to describe one of these spots to you, I regret more than ever the ill-health of my childhood, which prevented my attaining any degree of excellence in sketching from nature.' 
Had it not been for that interruption to my artistic education, I might, with a few touches of the pencil or the brush, give you the place and its surroundings. But, alas, my feeble pen will convey to you a very faint idea of its savage beauty. This bar is so small that it seems impossible that the tents and cabins scattered over it can amount to a dozen. There are, however, twenty in all, including those formed of calico shirts and pine boughs. With the exception of the paths leading to the different tenements, the entire level is covered with mining holes, on the edges of which lie the immense piles of dirt and stones which have been removed from the excavations. There is a deep pit in front of our cabin, and another at the side of it, though they are not worked, as when prospected they did not yield the colour. Not a spot of verdure is to be seen on this place, but the glorious hills rising on every side, vested in foliage of living green, make ample amends for the sterility of the tiny level upon which we camp. The surrounding scenery is infinitely more charming than that of Rich Bar. The river, in hue of a vivid emerald, as if it reflected the hue of the fir-trees above, bordered with a band of dark red, caused by the streams flowing into it from the different sluices, ditches, long-toms, etc., which meander from the hill just back of the bar, wanders musically along. Across the river, and in front of us, rises nearly perpendicularly a group of mountains, the summits of which are broken into many beautifully cut conical and pyramidal peaks. At the foot and left of these eminences, and a little below our bar, lies Missouri Bar, which is reached from this spot by a log bridge. Around the latter the river curves in the shape of a crescent, and, singularly enough, the mountain rising behind this bend in the stream outlines itself against the lustrous heaven in a shape as exact and perfect as the moon herself in her first quarter. Within one horn of this crescent the water is a mass of foam sparkles, and it plays upon the rocks which line its bed an everlasting dirge suggestive of the grand forever of the ocean. At present the sun does not condescend to shine upon Indian Bar at all, and the old settlers tell me that he will not smile upon us for the next three months, but he nestles lovingly in patches of golden glory all along the brows of the different hills all around us, and now and then stoops to kiss the topmost wave on the opposite shore of the Rio de las Plumas. The first artificial elegance which attracts your vision is a large rag shanty, roofed, however, with a rude kind of shingles, over the entrance of which is painted, in red capitals, to what base uses do we come at last, the name of the great Humboldt spelled without the D. This is the only hotel in this vicinity, and as there is a really excellent bowling alley attached to it, and the bar-room has a floor upon which the miners can dance, and, above all, a cook who can play the violin, it is very popular. But the clinking of glasses and the swaggering air of some of the drinkers remind us that it is no place for a lady, so we will pass through the dining-room and, emerging at the kitchen, in a step or two reach our log-cabin. "'Enter, my dear, you are perfectly welcome. "'Besides, we could not keep you out if we would, "'as there is not even a latch on the canvas door, "'though we really intend, in a day or two, "'to have a hook put on to it. "'The room into which we have just entered "'is about twenty feet square. "'It is lined over the top with white cotton cloth, "'the breadths of which, being sewn together only in spots, "'stretch gracefully apart in many places, "'giving one a bird's-eye view of the shingles above.' the sides are hung with a gaudy chintz which i consider a perfect marvel of calico printing the artist seems to have exhausted himself on roses from the largest cabbage down to the tiniest burgundy he has arranged them in every possible variety of wreath garland 
bouquet, and single flower. They are of all stages of growth, from earliest budhood up to the ravishing beauty of the last rose of summer. Nor has he confined himself to the colours usually worn by this lovely plant, but, with the daring of a great genius soaring above nature, worshipping the ideal rather than the real, he has painted them brown, purple, green, black, and blue. It would need a floral catalogue to give you the names of all the varieties which bloom upon the calico, but, judging by the shapes, which really are much like the originals, I can swear to moss-roses, burgundies, York and Lancaster, tea-roses, and multifloras. A curtain of the above-described chintz, I shall hem it at the first opportunity, divides off a portion of the room, behind which stands a bedstead that in ponderosity leaves the empire couches far behind. But before I attempt the furniture let me finish describing the cabin itself. The fireplace is built of stones and mud, the chimney finished off with alternate layers of rough sticks and this same rude mortar. Contrary to the usual custom, it is built inside, as it was thought that the arrangement would make the room more comfortable, and you may imagine the queer appearance of this unfinished pile of stones, mud, and sticks. The mantelpiece, remember that on this portion of a great building some artists, by their exquisite workmanship, have become world-renowned, is formed of a beam of wood covered with strips of tin procured from cans, upon which still remain, in black hieroglyphics, the names of the different eatables which they formerly contained. Two smooth stones, how delightfully primitive, do duty as fire-dogs. I suppose that it would be no more than civil to call a hole two feet square, in one side of the room, a window, although it is as yet guiltless of glass. F. tried to coax the proprietor of the empire to let him have a window from that pine and canvas palace, but he, of course, declined, as to part with it would really inconvenience himself. So F. has sent to Marysville for some glass, though it is the general opinion that the snow will render the trail impassable for mules before we can get it. In this case we shall tack up a piece of cotton cloth, and, should it chance at any time to be very cold, hang a blanket before the opening." at present the weather is so mild that it is pleasanter as it is though we have a fire in the mornings and evenings more however for luxury than because we really need it for my part i almost hope that we shall not be able to get any glass for you will perhaps remember that it was a pet habit of mine in my own room to sit by a great fire in the depth of winter with my window open one of our friends had nailed up an immense quantity of unhemmed cotton cloth, very coarse, in front of this opening, and as he evidently prided himself upon the elegant style in which he had arranged the drapery, it went to my heart to take it down and suspend in its place some pretty blue linen curtains which I had brought from the valley. My toilet-table is formed of a trunk elevated upon two claret-cases, and by draping it with some more of the blue linen neatly fringed, it really will look quite handsome, and when I have placed upon it my rosewood work-box, a large cushion of crimson brocade, some Chinese ornaments of exquisitely carved ivory, and two or three bohemian glass cologne stands, it would not disgrace a lady's chamber at home. The looking-glass is one of those which come in paper-cases for dolls' houses. How different from the full-length psyches so almost indispensable to a dressing-room in the States! The washstand is another trunk, covered with a towel, upon which you will see, for bowl, a large vegetable-dish, for ewer, a common-sized dining-pitcher. Near this, upon a small cask, is placed a pail, which is daily filled with water from the river. I brought with me from Marysville a handsome carpet, a hair mattress, 
pillows, a profusion of bed-linen, quilts, blankets, towels, etc., so that, in spite of the oddity of most of my furniture, I am, in reality, as thoroughly comfortable here as I could be in the most elegant palace. We have four chairs, which were brought from the Empire. I seriously proposed having three-legged stools. With my usual desire for symmetry, I thought that they would be more in keeping, but as I was told it would be a great deal of trouble to get them made, I was fain to put up with mere chairs. So you see that even in the land of gold itself one cannot have everything that she desires. An ingenious individual in the neighbourhood, blessed with a large bump for mechanics, and good nature, made me a sort of wide bench, which, covered with a neat plaid, looks quite sofa-like. A little pine-table, with oilcloth tacked over the top of it, stands in one corner of the room, upon which are arranged the chess and cribbage-boards. There is a larger one for dining purposes, and as unpainted pine has always a most dreary look, F. went everywhere in search of oilcloth for it, but there was none at any of the bars. At last Ned, the Humboldt Paganini, remembered two old monte-table covers which had been thrown aside as useless. I received them thankfully, and, with my planning and Ned's mechanical genius, we patched up quite a respectable covering. To be sure, the ragged condition of the primitive material compelled us to have at one end an extra border, but that only agreeably relieved the monotony. I must mention that the floor is so uneven that no article of furniture gifted with four legs pretends to stand upon but three at once, so that the chairs, tables, etc., remind you constantly of a dog with a sore foot. At each end of the mantelpiece is arranged a candlestick, not, much to my regret, a block of wood with a hole in the centre of it, but a real Britannia-ware candlestick. The space between is gaily ornamented with F.'s Meerschaum, several styles of clay-pipes, cigars, cigaritos, and every procurable variety of tobacco, for, you know, the aforesaid individual is a perfect devotee of the Indian weed. If I should give you a month of Sundays, you would never guess what we use in lieu of a bookcase, so I will put you out of your misery by informing you instantly— that it is nothing more nor less than a candle-box which contains the library, consisting of a Bible and prayer-book, Shakespeare, Spencer, Coleridge, Shelley, Keats, Lowell's Fable for Critics, Walton's Complete Angler, and some Spanish books, spiritual instead of material lights, you see. There, my dainty Lady Molly, I have given you, I fear, a wearisomely minute description of my new home. How would you like to winter in such an abode? In a place where there are no newspapers, no churches, lectures, concerts or theatres, no fresh books, no shopping, calling, nor gossiping little tea-drinkings, no parties, no balls, no picnics, no tableaus, no charades, no latest fashions, no daily mail, we have an express once a month, no promenades, no rides or drives, no vegetables but potatoes and onions, no milk, no eggs, no nothing. Now I expect to be very happy here. This strange, odd life fascinates me. As for churches, the groves were God's first temples, and for the strength of the hills the Swiss mountains bless him. And as to books, I read Shakespeare, David, Spencer, Paul, Coleridge, Burns, and Shelley, which are never old. 
In good sooth I fancy that nature intended me for an Arab or some other nomadic barbarian, and by mistake my soul got packed up in a Christianized set of bones and muscles. How I shall ever be able to content myself to live in a decent, proper, well-behaved house, where toilet-tables are toilet-tables, and not an ingenious combination of trunk and claret-cases, where lanterns are not broken bottles, bookcases not candle-boxes, and trunks not washstands, but every article of furniture, instead of being a makeshift, is its own useful and elegantly finished self, I am sure I do not know. However, when too much appalled at the humdrumous prospect, I console myself with the beautiful promises that, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, and, as thy days, so shall thy strength be, and trust that when it is again my lot to live amid the refinements and luxuries of civilization, I shall endure them with becoming philosophy and fortitude. End of letter 7 Recorded by Rachel Ellen at Yosemite, California, April 19, 2008.